Hello. Oh, hi, Mom. Hi. I'm ready. You know, this one is in the space called network security, which is a very technical area. How is that for you? Well, the podcast didn't sound that technical. Mm-hmm. I think he explained what they do and what they're still trying to do. How would you describe what they're trying to do? Like, what's the story they're telling? They're saying that just because you have access to a network shouldn't give you access to everything on the network. Mm-hmm. That they can pick and choose what different people can get into. I did like his moat analogy, which anyone listening to this will understand very shortly. Mm-hmm. I thought it gave a real picture of what they're doing in very simple terms. Yeah. 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 Okay, we done? This is The Bigger Narrative. I'm Andy Raskin, and my guest for this episode is James Weinbrenner, CEO of Elicity, a network security company that just raised a $26 million Series A. So network security can be a little dry, and sure enough, when Elicity's engineer founders brought James on board, they would talk about things like software-defined perimeter and AI. James wanted to tell investors and customers a more fundamental story about Elicity's bold vision, about a new game for the industry. But first, he had to name the old game, and that's where his moat analogy came in. Imagine you're standing inside of your house, and you were looking out the window, and you saw me on the street. And said, I, I don't really trust this guy. So uh, you look trustworthy, James. I I trust you, but I get it. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, the minute I step over the transom, it's you know here. It's all available. Just uh, kind of take what you want. My money, my books, my whatever assets I have inside of my house. But that's the legacy approach. If you were inside of the sort of four walls of the enterprise, that you were trusted. If you were outside the four walls of the enterprise, you were untrusted. And we established that trust boundary with we called it something very important, like a firewall. But effectively, it's a moat. When you came in as CEO, there was already a team of very technical founders. And I remember some of them were a little bit uneasy with this phrase moat. Like it was, I don't know, a little bit of a quaint metaphor. It's funny, you know, moat got a lot of chuckles from the team as we were going through the the strategic narrative process. But it, it continues to resonate in every customer conversation I have. You know, anybody that's been around enterprise infrastructure and, and certainly security for the last you know few decades, realizes that that's exactly what we were doing. In every narrative, there's a shift where the old approach or the old game is no longer viable. What's the shift for your buyer? The shift is simple. There is no four walls of the enterprise. I I joke that the the users all fled the castle with COVID, but it really didn't matter because the the treasure had been gone for a long time. Our data and our applications have, have moved out to various clouds. That's not done. But the reality is I need to be able to build a trust model that says, I don't care where my assets are located. I care what they are and I care what do I know about them and how should they be interacting regardless of location. And so the new model you call? Cognitive trust. And what is cognitive trust? So Elicity connects and protects assets based on what they are, not where they are. Maybe you could give me an example. What are two assets that might be within a moat in the old model implicitly trusting of each other? And what what are some conditions, things we'd learn about those assets that might govern how they interact? Andy may log in in the morning, but is it really Andy that's still there at two o'clock after the coffee break? And being able to do that continuous verification of that trust relationship becomes very important. 
So just because a person is authenticated on a network doesn't mean that person necessarily has free range of the house, <laughs> to use your metaphor from when we started. And just from our work together, I know we're also talking about applications. So an application that's on a network with lots of other assets like data and devices might not be able to access those things just by its being on the same network. There might be like all kinds of rules about what it can do and can't. And, you know, with most enterprises having thousands, thousands of apps and thousands of data sources and and devices, um, I imagine this gets very complex. Yeah, absolutely. How do we start to get smarter about how those policies come together so that it, it becomes, you know, feasible to manage that asset to asset policy? One thing I think a lot of teams deal with is there's some big buzzword in their space that everyone's gravitating towards. And it's a double-edged sword. You want to associate with that thing. On the other hand, if you do, you sound like everyone else. I remember in your space, in the work together, there's this huge narrative around what your market calls zero trust. (laughs) Could you explain what zero trust is? Yeah, zero trust is a brilliant concept. John Kinderbag came up with the concept when he was at Forrester. It's an idea that life would be a whole lot simpler if we just didn't trust anything. The challenge is twofold. Uh, Number one, it's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. Uh, We've not lived in a world in sort of enterprise infrastructure for the better part of three decades where zero trust has been a thing. We've lived in the opposite. It's been an implicit trust world. Second reason it's so difficult is because like any good marketing buzzword, looking at you, AI, it became a very easy thing to slap zero trust on your product. And everybody that had some type of remote access solutions, identity access management solution, everybody was jumping on that zero trust bandwagon. We certainly didn't want to fall into that trap. Some people think about this in terms of category, like is there a category of zero trust solution? And then are we part of that category. What I think you've done, whether you want to call it a subcategory or a different category, I don't even really know if the category metaphor makes sense, but you've said, hey, there's this other objective you need to get to. The idea of zero trust as a North Star, as a philosophy already exists, right? We're not trying to sell people on that. The problem is people don't know how to get there. So helping take that first step And I've had a couple of customers even say, like, let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good here. If we can get 5% incremental, you know, decrease in attack surface, if I can enable this piece of my digital transformation without taking another 16 months of security review to try and leverage a traditional control, like there is incremental value all over the place. How do we leverage this cognitive trust platform to begin delivering on that incremental value? And you know, we may only get halfway there for certain assets. We may get 80% of the way there for other, but we're delivering incremental value along the way. The way I think about it is like the game of basketball. Every basketball team is playing basketball. But then suddenly this one team said, hey, we're going to really focus on three-point shooting, the Warriors. I feel like there's an analogy there where, yes, you're playing ultimately the Zero Trust game, but there's a kind of game within that game that you're building the company around that is this cognitive trust. Yeah, that that's a great analogy. To your point, like everybody's playing basketball, but if you're focused on the three-point game, you know exactly what you need to get up and do every day to, to, to be the best at it. And that's how you end up owning your category. The goal here is not to be a, you know, put this in, flip a switch, and you can say you have zero trust. The goal is to be genuinely delivering on a daily basis incremental value towards a more explicit trust for enterprise assets. 
And what category we happen to be in is far less relevant. What you are saying, though, is you want them to embrace a different approach, which is cognitive trust. Which is cognitive trust. Absolutely. Right. And and, and I think that's where the customers that, that are excited to go on that journey with us are saying, hey, this is exactly what we need. We need the visibility into what those asset interactions are. We need help understanding how do we simplify these policies. We need help. This stuff is all moving around. And so if I'm trying to pin it to any kind of a physical location or a place in the network, I'm already behind. So how do we do this in a way that as those assets continue to move, the trust policy is absolutely following them? How has this narrative played a role in your leadership? Number one, it's always challenging kind of coming in to get everybody on board with a new direction. And it's not that the technical direction was wrong. It was just making sure that everybody knew why are we doing what we're doing? So going through the strategic narrative process early on, number one, having it be facilitated helps coming in as a new leader. You're not calling anybody's baby ugly. You're helping a conversation where babies may be called ugly, but everybody kind of comes out the end uh, and says, hey, we're bought into this, I think in a way that is really important. So that the first four to six weeks, being able to build relationships with a new team, being able to get people on board without the defensiveness, it was really a critical element in, in, in being able to very quickly get up and running. Beyond that, then it becomes a very easy way to go and, and to talk with, frankly, everybody from a recruiting standpoint, being able to very clearly articulate the why we're doing what we're doing. Part of it's in talking with customers. Again, it's a very noisy space. We want to make sure that we have very clear differentiation in terms of not just technology, but where we're evolving the company and the platform. And really using this as that North Star for why does this matter and what changed in the world such that we believe it is critically important has been very helpful in every conversation, internally, recruiting, customer, partner, uh, you name it. How about uh, fundraising? Yeah, no, no shortage of new security companies you know, focused on different approaches. Being able to set this framework around the strategy it very much helped us to select investors that bought in to the longer term narrative of what we we're doing versus the ones that were, you know, frankly, just very interested in point technology. But we're looking at a transformative journey. This is not something, again, that's a product you put in and flip a switch and then you sort of enable zero trust. So by definition, if we're asking customers to go on a journey with us, we want investors that are willing to go on that journey and help to build a company that delivers on this vision long term. The CEO of Zwara told me that when they came to that subscription economy narrative, it became a very clear dividing line for investors. Did you believe in this narrative? Then it was like a no-brainer. You're going to invest in this company. You don't. See you later or maybe the next round. Very much so. Again, because I think there's so much noise on the point product. What's the TAM? How do you differentiate in terms of what the tech can do? We're evolving on a week month quarter basis. So the question is, do you really buy into uh, a vision of a world where I can build trust relationships between my enterprise assets based on what they are and all the context I know about them and not on, not on where they are? Mm -hmm. Every team that is building around a strategic narrative that's, hey, there was an old way and there's a new way, old game, new game. You're telling them, hey, you're, you're not doing this right. How do you deliver that message without it being off-putting? I go back to one of my favorite episodes of, of The Office is when, you know, Michael's super excited about his get rich quick scheme. And Jim is arguing with him about it being a, a pyramid scheme. And Michael's adamant, this is not a pyramid scheme. So Jim, you know, walks up to the flip chart and all right, Michael, so 
you know, here's you. And then you have two people selling calling cards. And Michael has literally drawn this all out himself and is very proud. And then Jim just stands up and kind of draws a triangle around it and says, right, it's a pyramid. <laughs> I had a number of people that kind of laughed at the concept of moat. I said, well, you know, it's, it's not a moat. And, you know, he said, all right, well, let's get up on a whiteboard and literally let's draw this out. Whatever your fancy security control name that you're more comfortable with, at the end of the day, in terms of the trust relationship, it's a moat. And so being able to help people understand Hey, if we stop thinking about it around location, it becomes far simpler. It's not telling them that they're wrong. It's helping them to understand that the world just looks different today than, than it did five, 10 years ago. There have been a, a bunch of CEOs I've worked with now in the last year who were, like you, new to their companies. Anything you would recommend to other CEOs who are in that position? It's always a privilege to get to come in and build on top of uh, the success of, of, of founders. Um, and you know, you realize just how much blood, sweat, and tears have gone into where things are at. At the same time, you've got to be able to very quickly determine what are the things that we want to keep doing, what are the things we need to stop doing, uh, what are the things that we aren't doing that we need to start. For me, being able to leverage this idea of getting everybody on board with a strategic narrative that, frankly, you did an amazing job of facilitating the interaction with the team. You didn't tell us what the narrative was going to be. But you allowed for all of the interaction that really, frankly, accelerated a lot of the forming of the team around this new idea. And that then gave us a very clear uh, roadmap of what are the things we're going to stop? What are the things that we need to accelerate? And what are the things that we aren't doing that we need to go do? And all of it in the context of that narrative, without it being just a you know, autocratic, you know, this is, this is why we're going to go do this and kind of then take the next two quarters to try and really get people on board. It sounds like whether it's facilitated or not, it's somehow making sure that this is a collaborative approach with the founders and the old leadership, the old leadership that's going to continue to be part of the leadership and bring this all together. And yeah, I feel like the, the thing I'm working most on is how can I make it so, yes, the CEO is leading and authoring the vision, but everybody's bought in. So that, that feedback means a lot to me. Beyond that, if you've got time to spend rehearsing the narrative, the more time, the better, because it just becomes more and more and more natural and you find yourself using it in really every interaction. I've heard this talked about a lot of different ways, right? A high definition view of where you're going, understanding where the strategic direction is. But I think being able to articulate that in a strategic narrative that then underpins every customer interaction, every product discussion, every analyst discussion, every back to fundraising, it really just helps to anchor to why are we here? What are we doing? And it's not about the tech because the tech will be different in six months. That to me is the most important part of, of having clarity on that strategic narrative. A lot of wisdom from James here, but the thing I love most is how he thought it was so important to shift Elicity from differentiating based on what its tech can do to differentiating based on a belief about a new game for the buyer. Tech is no longer a static product in a box. Most companies are updating capabilities, as James said, quarterly, weekly, daily. There's no way to build a consistent position if it's just about product capabilities. Has to be a bigger story. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson and podcast cover art by Angela May Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee. 
Thanks to James Weinbrenner and everyone at Elicity. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Richard Raskin, Emily Raskin, Eli Raskin, Kimberly Feldman, Richie Feldman, Victoria Zenoff, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company story is the company strategy. Thank you.